Why did Jesus need to be sanctified? How does this impact us today? Did Jesus ever stop being God? If not, why did he have to pray? Why did he have to be baptized? I want to know. Well, it's with great joy that I welcome all of you once again to this week's episode of the Doctrine of Christ because it's still true that whether you know it or not, the Doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. And Jimmy, this is important to me to be able to be here with you every week to expound the word of the Lord to people, lift up Jesus. It's the most important thing. It it really is. And we know that so many of you know and understand that, and that is a great joy to our heart. And as we are going through this great 17th chapter of the book of John, we're going to look at verses 19 and 20 um, in this evening's study. And in John chapter 17 and the 19th verse, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Jesus sanctified himself so that we can be sanctified. And that will cause us to do a little thinking. You know, if Jesus was sinless and perfect, why did he need to be sanctified? And I want to begin with the thought from uh, Brother George Newton. As he wrote on page 300 of his commentary, he says, Jesus Christ did willingly and freely set himself apart to be an offering and a sacrifice to God the Father. It was something that Jesus willingly did. There's that old song, the happy Goodmans used to sing it, born to die. He was born to die. He knew when he, even before he came into this world, that he was coming to die. I knew Vestal for just a little bit. Uh-huh. Vestal Goodman. Yeah. She was character. Yeah. You know, when I, when I was just reading this scripture tonight, just preparing for this, you know, I was wondering, could there be anything to this where he being our high priest was doing the high priestly, uh, you know, thing that all the high priests had to do when they would go into the temple. They had to sacrifice, they had to sanctify themselves. They had to go through purification rituals. And and I wonder if, there were, if there's anything with that involved in this, where he yeah. says, I sanctify myself because I'm coming into the Holy of Holies basically. You know what I mean? Yeah, there absolutely is. And he offered the one sacrifice forever. And he did it as the pure, sinless son of God, fulfilling all of the types of the Old Testament sacrifices. All of those were the shadows of which Jesus is the reality. And he sanctified himself. And there's a couple aspects to this. The first aspect we're going to think about is, as Brother Newton said, he set himself apart to die, to fulfill 
the offering of all the the fulfillment of all those Levitical sacrifices. And in first Peter chapter two, uh, verse twenty one and twenty two, for even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. His suffering was for us, and it's an example. He sanctified himself that we might be sanctified. He's not asking us to do something that he didn't do himself, but he set himself apart unto suffering. He, he lived a sinless life in verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. No action. And over and over again, I use that little uh, acronym, the C, the D, and the E, the cross, the doctrine, and the example of Christ. No action Jesus ever took was ever wrong or improper in any way. No word he ever spoke was wrong. Every one of those red letters is perfect and pure and holy. Every action he took was exactly in line with the will of the Father. And he did it for a reason. He sanctified himself that we might be sanctified. And through his death on the cross, every blessing that any believer ever receives from God, that's and that's the only legitimate blessings. People are getting other blessings from other places, but it ain't God. But it's through faith in the finished work of the cross. It's the cross. At the cross, our salvation was finished. Our healing was finished. Everything we need is right there in that finished work of atonement. And it's just right there for us. And in John chapter 5 and verse 19, then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Jesus said and did only what he saw and heard the Father do. Jesus uh, reiterated the same thing again in John chapter 14 and the 10th verse. And Jesus said there, believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And to be sanctified, it means to be set apart for a purpose. And there's another meaning to that we're going to look at too. It means not only to be set apart, but it also, it has the concept of the inward cleansing and the inward purity. And he was set apart totally to the Father's will, to obedience. He, was, he lived in obedience to God's law. He lived in obedience to his Father's will. He didn't come. Uh, he was God in the flesh, but he didn't come making anything up. He come completely submissive and completely obedient in perfection to the Father. He sanctified himself that we might be sanctified. That holy life that he lived enabled him to die as our sinless sacrifice. That holy life he lived is a pattern for us, that as he set himself unto the Father, 
we set ourselves apart under the doctrine of Christ, which shows us the perfect will of the Father. Like Jesus said, and we read in our last lesson, and also in the 20th chapter of John, as my Father sent me, so send I you. You know, Jesus come in perfect submission to the Father. We come in perfect submission to the Son, which puts us in perfect submission to the Father, because everything Jesus said and did was from the Father. You know, we've got a pattern here. And it's called sanctification, and it's called setting apart, and Jesus had to be sanctified, and we also have to be sanctified. It's not something that we can just skip and go on to something more exciting. Well, let's just skip that and study Bible prophecy. Well, you can't do that. You can do that, but uh, it's not going to work out well for you in your spiritual life. And this is the prayer, and as we have emphasized throughout our study in John 17, Jesus was praying for the most important things that he wants us to get. You know, Jesus is praying for us that we can get this, and it's disturbing, quite frankly, how few people um, are getting this when it is so, so clear that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And we were talking last week that truth is a person. Truth is a person. And we know that that person is Jesus. It's more than just having some things that are true. Old Cooter's dog knows some things that are true, but it's a matter of having the truth. Now, in uh, Thomas Manton, he said this, he said the heathens counted it a lucky sacrifice that went to the altar without struggling and roaring. Certainly Christ did meekly suffer what was imposed on him for the expiration of our sins. A swine whineth and maketh a noise, but a sheep is dumb. This was the emblem chosen to represent Christ's meekness and patience. He suffered it willingly. And let's look at some of those scriptures as we meditate upon the great sacrifice that Christ made for us. And I want to read the text in the uh, the amazing 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. It's hard to imagine a Jewish individual that could read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and not see Jesus there. I know. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. In the 10th chapter of John, and this just magnifies our understanding of the atonement and the understanding of a great savior in John, the 10th chapter and the 18th verse. And let's just read uh, verse 17 also. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Jesus could have stopped it at any minute, any moment upon the cross when they were coming to get him. He could have shut it down 
in any moment with just the thought in his mind, but he willingly gave himself for us. And and it says here in this text that he had the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And there's also a text, and I can't pull up the citation for you. You can look the scripture up probably pretty quickly. But it says, and it's in the book of Hebrews, how that Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit. Through the eternal spirit. And the Holy Spirit played a big role in the um, death of Christ. And so did the Father. And there on the cross, uh, when he bore the sin of the world, the Father turned away. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I believe then through the eternal spirit, and I think it might possibly, the the Holy Spirit might even have told Jesus the very moment to die. We don't know these things for sure, right. but he was offered through the eternal spirit. And uh, so I don't know, but we do know that Jesus willingly gave himself. He willingly suffered for us. and you know, it was the joy set before him, right? Yeah, that's exactly another great text from the epistle to the Hebrews. And, you know, it is just the more you meditate on these things, the more the love and the power and the greatness of Jesus overwhelms us. And yeah, earlier this year, I went through Hebrews verse by verse. Everybody should do that. Yeah, I mean, we should do the whole Bible that way. But that was a that was a great study. Yeah, the book of Hebrews is just yeah. And here again, I say this about so many verses, but there is such meat in the book of Hebrews. It's a beefsteak book. It's definitely a beefsteak book. Um, it most definitely is. And you know this verse here you read too about. Jesus saying, I had the power to lay it down and I had the power to take it up again. I remember when he was telling the, uh, either the disciples or the Pharisees, he's like, I can tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it back up. He even said it then I will raise it back up. He sure did. Great example, Jimmy. Great scripture reference. Brother Newton said this. It is so that Jesus Christ did willingly and freely set himself apart to be an offering and sacrifice to God the Father. Then let us learn of him, my brethren, as willingly, if it be possible, to offer up ourselves, our persons, our estates, our names, our lives, and all to him to suffer anything for him again. He sanctified himself that we might be sanctified. And like Jesus um, asked the sons of thunder, you know, uh, you know, can you drink this cup? You know, you want a little of this cup? <laughs> I'm about to drink it, you know. You know, I read that scripture today and, and, he used the bad word baptize. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and that literally means to submerge young. And literally, it was a baptism and a submersion in suffering. Into suffering. Yeah, it wasn't water, but it still used yeah, that it, word baptize. Yeah. Yeah. 
Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? It already been baptized by John of the Jordan, but now, and that's what that word baptismal means, to submerge in. You can be submerged in water, and literally, it was a submersion in suffering, totally overwhelming, beyond the limits of uh, the things that Jesus went through were beyond the, um, just beyond comprehension, and that he did it willingly. You know, and if you're being tortured, and I mean, if you're being tortured to this degree, the the 39 lashes of that lash with the pieces of glass and iron tearing the flesh. And if you could any time just lift up your hand, OK, that's it. Stop it. You know, it wouldn't take long for us to stop it. But Jesus didn't stop it. Yeah, and he could have. I think I would have stopped it before the first one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, it's really something to think about. And there's a purpose here. Jesus sanctified himself and set himself apart that we might be sanctified. And as Brother Newton said, well, let's learn, and uh, we need to offer ourselves up, our states, our names, our lives, and all to him to suffer suffer anything for him again. And these weren't empty words for the Puritans. Uh, They lost their churches. They lost their homes. uh, They lost their property. They lost their freedom. Many of them did. Some even lost their lives. And um, they're not going to be hollow words in the days to come. There's going to be a price to pay for standing with Jesus. And we need to count that cost right now. And this is so true as Brother Newton would remind us of the example of Christ and the extreme suffering that he went through, that this certainly is um, so that we might be sanctified. And the very first meaning of that is that we're set apart. And what are we set apart to? We're set apart to Jesus. We say it all the time, the doctrine of Christ and the commandments of God. That's what we're set apart to. What's like last week's episode, too, about um, sanctify, or what, what do we say? Um, be ye holy as, as I am holy. That's, that was part of the sanctification, you know? Yeah. And we talked about the two aspects of it last week. Mm-hmm. Number one, you're set apart. Okay. Well, I'm setting myself apart to the doctrine of Christ. That's it. You know, that's my doctrine. That's my marching orders. I'm focused. It's not the doctrine of Christ tonight. And, uh, we'll, Listen to David Jeremiah tomorrow night, get raptured, you know. It's it's a setting apart, it's sanctification, setting apart to Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, Hebrews 5 and 8, it says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He was a man of sorrows, the scripture calls him and acquainted with grief. He knew what grief and sorrow was, and he learned obedience through suffering. What a concept. And though, and we've talked about it, it, these bring to our mind again the, the concepts of Jesus being fully God, fully man, and we've talked about the humanity of Christ, and here we, we really see the man Christ Jesus that chose to die for us, that chose to suffer, that learned. 
he became a human being for goodness sake. And um, he learned he was obedient to his parents. They probably told him some stuff he didn't want to do, <laughs> but he did it. He was obedient to his earthly father and mother, his heavenly father. That's our Jesus. It's amazing. And he learned it through suffering. He learned it through suffering. What an amazing thing. What an amazing Jesus that we serve. Now, Brother Burgess, Anthony Burgess, um, he said this on page 228. He said, Christ is sanctified to sanctify us. This is plain in the text. Christ died not only to take away the guilt of our sin, but to make us a peculiar people zealous of good works. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. And this is the rest of it. And let's read that text in the epistle of Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. We are to be set apart in our belief unto Christ, his cross, his doctrine, and his example. And in the epistle of Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify. Now, there's the other part of the atonement. He gave himself for us to redeem us from the guilt, the power, and the presence of sin, and also to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We've talked about that also. That's very much in view, that work of the Holy Spirit baptism, the old fan fanning away the shaft. We are to be set apart unto him and that purification power of the Holy Spirit. We read three and five last week, not by works of righteousness, which, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And we are purified to be a people zealous for good works. We're not saved to become the frozen chosen, but we're saved to do good works. And those works usually translate into, uh, well, be in church every time the doors are open. And oh yeah, you got, we got a support group. Uh, if you got a problem with biting your fingernails, we have the fingernail biting support group here for you. And we're going to pass out water bottles. Uh, and you know, Good works are good works, but we're talking about good works for the gospel. There's dead works and there's good works. And in Ephesians chapter 2, and we love uh, this verse, and rightly so, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And certainly there's no work that we can perform to save ourselves or to sanctify ourselves. But let us not leave out verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Work in promoting the gospel, work in, in building up the kingdom of God in reality, in purpose, just not some dead a uh, silly religious dead work that doesn't mean anything 
of in the eternal scheme of things. John chapter 17 and the 20th verse. This is one of my favorite verses in this favorite chapter of mine. Because that includes us. Yes, it does. Neither pray I for these alone. Meaning the 12. But for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And we might say that we're saved because of the prayers of Jesus. Yeah. And we might say we're saved because of the obedience of John and Paul and Matthew, that they also were obedient, every one of them, uh, with the exception of Judas, of course, and the Apostle John died a natural death, but everyone gave their life. The Apostle John, he certainly suffered. They boiled him all, <laughs> boiled him and all and put him in prison. But like the old Energizer bunny, he just kept on a ticking. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems as though Jesus's prayer for them was answered. Yes, it was. And also his prayer for us will be answered. I mean, think yeah. about it. everything about Jesus is why we can have salvation. And it, they weren't supermen. I mean, look at old Peter. I mean, Peter stepped in it repeatedly. He done some boneheaded stuff. He denied Christ three times. But after he was filled with the Holy Ghost, after Pentecost, he was another man. I think the father wanted that as examples because he knew how we were going to be. <laughs> and we yep. needed examples of good godly people who really screwed up. Yeah. You know? And they, you know, they didn't have some kind of morbid desire to suffer. Suffering isn't pleasant for anybody, but they knew going in the cost. And they also knew going in the reward and the great joy of Christ, of knowing him and having a relationship with the Father. But what a blessed thought. What a blessed thought. And Brother Newton put it this way. He said, he says he'll, he'll have in big, all capital letters, doctrine. Then he'll have a hyphen. Doctrine. Our Savior's intercession is not confined to those who believe, but it extends to those who shall believe, though for the present they have no faith at all in them. And as a result of that, we're saved because of Jesus' prayers. Jesus is praying for us was our very first lesson. And here our great high savior and high priest, he is interceding for um, everyone that will be saved during the age of grace. What a beautiful thought. Yeah, I was just looking, as I was reading that, I got just a little commentary sitting here right beside it from Adam Clark, and he was just saying, this prayer extends itself through all ages and takes in every soul that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so true. And man, that's a, we got to talk about, you got to have a little meditating here. You got to just meditate a little and let that soak in. Mm -hmm. That's some that's some tall grass right there to walk through. Brother Newton goes on to say that true believers do pitch their faith on Jesus Christ and make him the object of it. 
Christ is the object of a true believing faith. And everybody says, well, yeah, sure. But is he? Now, you know, ever anybody that goes through any doors of a church that claims to be a Christian, is Jesus the object of your faith? Well, yeah, yeah, sure, but is it really? Are you really sanctified under the truth that Jesus spoke? Are you really sanctified under that finished work of the cross and really sanctified to his example of suffering? I fear in most cases the answer would be no, and I think that's probably just obvious, uh, just all all too obvious. And Brother Newton goes on to say, uh, he says, sanctified through their word, through whose word? Why, through the apostles' word, for whom our Savior is a suitor to his Father in the foregoing parcel of his prayer. Doctrine, hyphen. It is the gospel word that makes believers. The gospel is the intro instrumental means of faith. That's another one. That's another doctrine, hyphen, we need to get. It is the gospel word that makes believers. The gospel is the instrumental means of faith. You know, I say these big, deep things, Jimmy, like following Jesus is following Jesus. Following Jesus means you really follow Jesus. You know, like Brother Burgess said, Jesus is the object of a true saving faith. That's what we're saying here. And we're trying to help people realize that most of what is out there um, isn't this simple, pure gospel and this simple, pure doctrine of Christ that we have. But let's think just a bit on the gospel. The gospel is, as the apostle Paul said, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, um, Romans 1 and 18. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us the things that we must believe to make that, achieve that new birth. These are the nuts and bolts facts. In 1 Corinthians 15, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. In the first chapter of Galatians, Paul talks about receiving the gospel from the Lord himself, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, for our sins. And like we talked about last week, when he keeps referencing as it is written in the scripture, according to the scriptures of the scriptures, it's the Old Testament. Yes, it All is. All of this was written. Now, we know the facts. We know the facts of the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. His death on the cross was for the payment of our sin debt. We 
are born sinful and we're all sinners. Sin is the transgression of the law. None of us have never uh, told a lie or never stolen anything or lusted or, you know, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we have a holy God. Sin cannot enter into the presence of a holy God. Therefore, we have to deal with our sin problem. And the only thing that can is that sacrifice upon the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. That's good news. The good news, you know, well, we're all sinners. That'll sound too good. But the good news is Jesus died for us. Now, we know the facts of the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. But how do people appropriate that? Just knowing that intellectually doesn't save anybody. The devil knows that. Uh, he knows that's true. A lot of people that are living lives of debauchery, they really know that's true and believe it, but it's not appropriated. Now, in Mark, the first chapter, and let's read verses 14 and 15. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance has to be there to appropriate the gospel. We know the great facts of what Christ did, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, for our sins. And I, I might add something else here, but we got to repent. And there's something else I'll throw in here too, because this also uh, is a necessity of uh, John chapter one and verse 29 uh, says the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He fulfilled that lamb had to be without spot and without blemish to qualify for a sacrifice under the Levitical system. And a lot of people believe in Jesus, but you know, he was just a man. Uh, he wasn't really perfect. He wasn't really God. And if you throw out the sinless virgin birth of Christ, you have no salvation. You have no salvation. Behold the Lamb of God, that sinless, pure sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So believe in it. We got to qualify that nowadays, don't we? Because Jesus... Uh, some people say he was an alien, uh, a man that became an avatar through achieving a higher consciousness, um, whatever. But uh, the only correct answer there is behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Only the sinless virgin-born Savior that did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. That is the Jesus that will save our soul. And the symbolism of even Pilate inspecting Jesus and saying, I find no fault in this man. Like yes. he, like, like they had to inspect a lamb before yeah. they sacrificed it. Jesus got inspected, and I find no fault. Yeah. And that's something inspected by the man that would turn him over to die and admitted, I find no fault in him. Absolutely amazing. So powerful. And let's just, you know, call upon a, a bunch of people just couldn't get together over a thousand years and write this Bible and it worked together like this. It just, it's impossible. No. 
And you look at Isaiah 53, you look at the 22nd Psalm. My goodness. Yeah. My goodness. The uh, the marvels of the word of God unfolding this marvelous plan of salvation for us. Now let's meditate. And we've done entire episodes on repentance. And my favorite Charles Spurgeon sermon is Turner Burn. Uh, he preached this on December 7th, 1856. And Brother Spurgeon gives us a pretty good definition of repentance here. He said, in the next place, repentance, to be sure, must be entire. Now, right here, we have hit upon the reason why there are churches full of people that profess Christ and don't know him, that have never experienced new birth, what we could call slot bucket repentance, slot bucket repentance, like the it says in the epistle of Second Peter that people are like a hog returning to the vomit, and it's slot bucket. It's like they can say they repent, but they still can return and live in their vomit. And Brother Spurgeon says in the next place, repentance, to be sure, must be entire. How many will say, sir, I will renounce this sin and the other, but there are certain darling lusts which I must keep and hold. Oh, sirs, in God's name, let me tell you, it is not the giving up of one sin nor 50 sins, which is true repentance. It is the solemn renunciation of every sin. If thou dost harbor one of those accursed vipers in thy heart, thy repentance is but a sham. If thou does, dost indulge in but one lust and dost give up every other, that one lust, like one leak in a ship, will sink thy soul. That's like that regarding iniquity in my heart. Yeah. Scripture. How many preachers are going to get on board with that? I mean, let's face it. I hope a lot, but maybe not. <laughs> I hope a lot would, Jimmy. I would hope so, too. But um, I would fear that's probably not the case. Now, repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. That has to be there to appropriate the gospel. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Well, you know what it is. Repent and believe. And another aspect here in Romans, the 10th chapter, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. And the scripture says here that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and right there's two things, confession. And this is something that begins with baptism. And in baptism, you know, the two questions that I will ask people, we baptized 15 more just last Sunday, praise God. And do you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And do you renounce Satan and all of his ways. These were the two things that were asked by the anti-Nicene Church of the Martyrs when they would baptize, and that is the same thing here. And this incorporates the two things here in Romans, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, Jesus said, if you don't confess me before man, I won't confess you before the Father. 
and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So there's real repentance, and then there's submission to the lordship of Christ. There's not only the renunciation of Satan, but the commitment of lordship to Christ. These are the things to appropriate the true gospel. And most of what I hear today, yeah, I mean, you know, repent and bow the knee to Christ as Lord is the true gospel. But today what I hear is, will you accept Jesus? Will you please accept Jesus? You know, poor Jesus is up there needing us to accept him. Yeah, I mean, really? And that's not the gospel. It's sweet and it's syrupy and uh, it'll get a hundred people to raise their hand, but it's not the gospel. There's repentance and submission to the Lordship of Christ. This is the way Spurgeon laid it out. That's the way Finney laid it out, the way Wesley laid it out. And there were people really changed and converted when the true gospel was preached. And I'm just not a glass half full type of guy that the real gospel is being preached real frequently nowadays. There's a lot of sermons that are mostly just geared around just personal issues and how you can overcome social anxiety or how you can just be a better member of society and just things like that, you know, and those are all good. I'm not saying there's not, there's, that are not, but when that's the bulk, those types of milk toast is what I call it kind of sermons. Uh, when that's the majority of what you hear throughout a year's time, if you're a regular, you know, churchgoer, you know, you're missing out on a lot of stuff. You're missing out. I could go in the other room and get my Charles Ryrie book on doctrine. And there's a definite school of thought here. The dispensational one comes right out of Dallas Theological Seminary. It's championed by Charles Stanley, who was president of the Southern Baptist Convention for I don't know how long. And by a fellow the name of Zane Hodges, who taught Greek down at Dallas for years. And another fellow. Um, let's see. We got Stanley Hodges and Charles Ryrie. And what the, he got the Ryrie Study Bible. What they have done is they have redefined the word repent. And they say that repent, matano, means to change one's mind. And that's true. But they chop off any responsibility of repentance of sin. Repentance is just changing your mind who Jesus is. Do you believe Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe he's God? All right, we'll sign you up. Yeah, uh, fill out the card and drop it in the offering pan. Uh, but that's not salvation. When you separate repentance from turning from sin, you no longer have the true gospel. And I could bring in a, I know of which I speak here. I've uh, quoted these people many times on that. That's exactly what these people do. And it's not the true gospel. And I remember, and this has been years ago, back when Sister Donna and I were young and ambitious and full of spit and vinegar and would do a lot of street witnessing, would pass out a lot of tracts. And we wanted a salvation tract to pass out, so we stopped by the local Christian bookstore to pick us up some tracts. 
and they had the little spinner tracks there and they had all kinds of tracks there. We looked at about eight or 10 salvation tracks. We couldn't find one with the word repent in it. Could not find a single track at the gospel bookstore with the word repent in it for salvation. So we wrote our own track. And if you listen, uh, and if you listen to the so-called gospel that's been being presented, it falls short, I believe, in most cases of the gospel of repentance. Salvation is a deliberate repentance and submission to the Lordship of Christ by virtue of his death upon the cross for our sins. That's the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord. That isn't just a clever saying to say, but that means we submit ourselves to him. He sanctified himself. Brother Burgess said this on uh, page 251 of his second volume, and this is something to think about. Um, he said, for the Arians, those are those that teach that Jesus is a created being. A lot of people in the sacred name and the JWs are good Arians, and a lot of that around, the Arians and the Socians did from hence argue that Christ was not God. It being absurd, they say, for him to pray who could do what he pleased, even as it is absurd to say that God can pray, seeing he is omnipotent and hath no superior. So basically, their argument is if Jesus was God, he wouldn't have to pray. And if he was God, he wouldn't have anyone to pray to. And this is the argument put forth then and still put forth to this day of people that would argue and diminish the deity of Christ. Now, let's look at some scripture. Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and the 18th verse. And Jesus Christ certainly was equal to the Father. And the Jews understood what Jesus was saying. That's why they accused him of blasphemy and wanted to kill him. In the 18th verse of John 5, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus kept the real Sabbath. He broke the Jewish concept of the Sabbath, but he kept the real Sabbath. And they understood that Jesus was doing no less than claim to be equal with God. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was God, and there's no doubt about it that Jesus is God in the scriptures, and uh, and we've talked also that blessed truth that there's one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. This is the true teaching of the Godhead. In John 8 and 24, I said, therefore, unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. This tells us something else that we must believe if we're going to make heaven and miss hell. We have to believe I am he. And the phrase, there's two phrases here. 
uh, incorporated in that. I am and I am he. And these are here again. We're going back to the Old Testament here, Jimmy. And there's no way we can understand this outside of the Old Testament. Now, Ellicott in his commentary, um, he says this believing not is itself a state of sin. It is separation from the only source of life and is necessarily accompanied by death. Not believing this truth is a death sentence, according to this text, and we know the text is correct. He says the words had a sacred history which told of the revelation of Jehovah unto Moses. And we read that in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the third chapter and the 14th verse, we know the story of the burning bush. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And this is the revelation of the Tetragrammaton as the eternal, ever existing one. And that doesn't mean that you have to spell God's name right to go to heaven. You know, we've, we're begun in the spirit and we're not made perfect by spelling. You know, you don't have to spell God's name right or say it a certain way, but it's through believing that Jesus is Jehovah God, the, the only true God that we have to believe that we have to believe he's God in the flesh. So when our Jehovah witness friends, when they diminish Christ to a God and John one, one and all of the Arians, and there's a bunch of them, there's a fella out in Pennsylvania who's supposedly the biggest guy in the sacred name movement now, and he's got his own Bible out. And uh, it just, just like the JWs, Jesus, he's an Arian. Jesus is a created being uh, little God, the whole thing. And this is damnable. You know, this is damnable. Uh, it, it is just really frightening that people don't realize that when they buy into this, that they're, they're damning their own souls. They're absolutely damning their own souls. Now, brother Godet, or is that Godet? Jimmy, Probably Godet. Godet. All yeah. right. I'll call him Godet. This is what he said. He says, it seems to me difficult to suppose that in using this expression, Jesus is not thinking of that by which Jehovah often expresses what he is for Israel. As has been said in this word, summed up by God himself, the whole faith of the Old Testament, I am your God besides whom there is no other. In the same way, Jesus sums up this word, the whole faith of the new covenant. I am the Savior besides whom there is no other. Now, this is so powerful. And we're going to read these texts. And like bro Brother Godet said, this phrase, I am he, that's the summation of the total attributes of the one true God in the old covenant. And when Jesus embraces this, he identifies himself with the one true only God. And not only that, but he makes the entire purpose and summation of the new just the same as the old, just the same as the old. Now, 
let's look at the text here that Brother Godet referred to. Let's look at the book of Deuteronomy 32:39, and it certainly does express all that Jehovah was for Israel. See now that I, even I am he, there's our phrase, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, and this is even the text that is so ironic that this is the very text that the Jehovah Witnesses use for their foundation, and it totally rebukes, rebukes their whole deal. But in Isaiah 43 and 10, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. The I am he of Isaiah 43 and 10, Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am he, you're dying your sins. So what do we do? Let's start a church and say Jesus is not I am he, he's a little God. You know, <laughs> we need to pray for our people and the Jehovah Witnesses. If nothing else, this should bolt a Jehovah Witnesses out of that terrible air they're in. And it's not just, well, I got a right to believe this. You got a right to believe that. Well, you do. But if you choose to believe that, according to the real Jesus, you're going to die in your sins because we must believe in the deity of Christ or we're goner. The I am he. The I am he. Now, Brother Burgess said this on page 251. He said, because as man, he was not omnipotent. Now, we went through all the attributes of God in one season on the DOC. And omnipotent means all-powerful. He created uh, Jesus. Uh, it says in John chapter 1, and I'll just read the text because we can't. This is something we need to repeat over and over and over and over. John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was the creator. Also, there are texts that we could bring forth that speaks of the Holy Ghost also as being a part of creation. And because he was a man, he was not omnipotent. His deity was omnipotent, but he became a man. It says, and so his human will was not able to accomplish the things he desired. For although as God, he could do all things. Now, Let's look at some scripture to back this up, because this is the attack that's made. Well, if Jesus was God, he wouldn't have to pray. You know, if Jesus was God, he wouldn't have anyone to pray to. But they don't understand the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and that the one true God is made up of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, where Christ said, yes, I'll die. I'll go. You know, the father said, well, it's my heart to create some human beings that can choose to love me. But I know there's going to be some that will choose not to. And we're we're going to make a, 
a creature that's capable of love, he had to make a creature that was capable of choice. And by so doing, he created the capacity. Uh, and even in Isaiah, there's a text that says, I create evil. And he did in the sense that he created free will. And uh, to have love, we must have the possibility of betrayal because love is a choice. And whenever you love, all of us have loved and got hurt in our life. You know, we've all been through that. And um, that's just the way that it is. But as a man, as a man in his humanity, he chose, he said, yes, I'll come. I'll come. I'll die. I'll suffer. And the plan of salvation was set in effect. And in Genesis 3.15, it was prophesied that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. First Timothy chapter two and verse five, which speaks, this is our great high priestly prayer of intercession. And in first Timothy uh, two and five, it talks about the mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is a man, he became a man. And in verse six, who gave himself a ransom for all, Jesus died for you. Amen. He died for you and he died for me. And we can repent and believe the gospel. In the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, and, and this is the great chapter here in the second chapter of the book of Philippians on what's called the kenosis or the emptying out of Christ. And he literally laid aside the prerogatives of his deity. He was God. He was the creator. But he said, I'll set that all aside. He, he never ceased being God, but he ceased using his power as God to be a man. He couldn't be a man and still continue to do everything in his deity. This is where we get into some very uh, marvelous deep truths of being fully God and fully man, which uh, we've done, we've dived into that a bit. And it's just a marvelously beautiful concept, but it's the man Christ Jesus. And at this very moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the father in his glorified body. And he still has the scars in the palms of his hand and the spear mark in his side, he is still there at the right hand of the Father in his glorified body, bearing the marks of the suffering that he suffered for us. And in this great chapter of Philippians chapter two, it talks about the kenosis or the emptying out, the laying aside, if you will, of the prerogatives of his deity. And when we think, I mean, you know, You have the power to do anything. Oh, I'll give that up. I'll give that up and I'll suffer, you know? Well, Philippians 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word, the word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant 
and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So it was like um, Jesus, because he prayed, uh, didn't mean he wasn't God, but it means he was God. And he humbled himself in obedience to the Father, that he could become a man and die for our sin. The prophet Job, in the oldest book in scripture, he said, oh, how I long for a daysman that can lay hand upon me and God. He longed for that. And now that daysman has come, that kinsman redeemer. He can lay his hand upon the Father and he can lay up his hand upon us because he's fully God, fully man. And that redeemer that Job longed for, he said, for I know that my redeemer liveth and he shall stand in the latter day upon this earth. And though skin worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Job knew it and it's come to pass. And Jesus has truly laid his hand upon God and man, and he has brought our salvation. And in the, in the 14th chapter of John and in the 28th verse, this is another text that the Socians and the Arians used to try to say that Jesus wasn't God. And in John chapter 14 and verse 28, you have heard now I say unto you, I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And in his humanity, he was. Jesus submitted to the Father as a man, and in his manhood, he could say the Father was greater than I. But yet, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 5, 18, he made himself equal to God. Philippians 2, 6, who being in the form of God, thought are not robbery to be equal with God. You see, they don't understand. They don't understand. And these are just arguments that people throw out to try to um, use and confuse people. And um, there was even someone uh, back in the day <laughs> um, when John and I were stepping in it just a little bit. But there was a fella crept into Now You See TV teaching this very thing. And he got the boot. And when I tell people that this is very common in the Hebrew root movement, I guarantee it is. I know of which I speak. And there's, and you know, this guy, um, he was hiding it very well. And it, they, I tell you what, they're, ah, I tell you what, they're literally infiltrators. They, they creep in and they spread their poison. And it's poison because it's damnable. Everyone they can trick into believing their lies, they will damn their soul. Because if you believe not that I am he, you'll die in your sins. So it's it's a very, very, very serious thing. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, um, let's read uh, beginning at about uh, verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterwards, they that are Christ said he's coming. Then cometh the end. Then cometh the end. 
Doesn't say then cometh the millennial reign, Jimmy. He says then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, and when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Well, that would mean he's reigning now, isn't that? Verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, which will happen when he returns. In verse 27, for he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under his feet, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him, the Father. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And after the return of Christ, things changed. And we talked a little bit about at the cross how that the relationship of the Godhead changed and about Jesus said, um, I'm not going to pray the Father for you, but you pray to the Father in Jesus' name. And of course, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, he played a new role after the death of Christ. And in the beginning, at the very time when the plan of salvation was laid down, there was that perfect, God was all in all, the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that's what Paul is saying, that when Christ returns and delivers up the kingdom and the Father, God will be all in all. The relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost will be just like it was when the, the plan of salvation was originally conceived, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Brother Burgess said this, as man, Christ was subject to the law of God and bound to give that worship and religious service to God, which the law did require. Amen. Jesus perfectly kept the law. And in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15, and Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And he's talking about being baptized by John. He wasn't baptized by John because he was sinful, but it fulfilled all righteousness. He was doing a pattern. He sanctified himself that we might be sanctified. He was baptized so that we would follow his example, not because he was sinful, fulfilling all righteousness. And Jesus always, uh, if well, and let's just look at the scripture in First John, the third chapter and the fourth verse, where the scripture says here, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. If Jesus would have ever broken the law in so much as one place, he'd be a sinner. And he wasn't. He perfectly fulfilled the law. The Jews accused him of being a Sabbath breaker, but Jesus showed us how to really obey the Sabbath. It was the Jews and the Pharisees that had that wrong. We can't say that enough. That's something we need to repeat over and over and over. And I love in the 119th Psalm, the scripture says, oh, how I love thy law, Lord. Oh, how I love it. I love it. Don't just like it. I love it. You know, and when we understand what God's law is, we'll love it. And in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2 and 3, 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now, there we go. Now, there's a lot of that we've read in the 14th chapter of John. Jesus, John here is very doubling down on that which Christ taught and he recorded in the great 14th chapter of John, part of that upper room discourse. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. If you're a child of God, you will not consider the law a burden, but a joy. Oh, how I love thy law, o Lord. Now, let's read one thing else here from Brother Manton. On, um, this is on page 22. And it, it reminds me of, we read the scripture in Isaiah about how the word will not return void that if we put that word out, it'll accomplish that which the Lord did. That's all we have to do. We have to be faithful messengers. We get the gospel right. We preach it right. We put it out. We pray for it. Those seeds, truth will find a home in the hearts of people. And Brother Manton said this, the power of the word is exceeding great. And we really need to get our minds around that. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirits and the joints of the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. It's powerful and it's quick. And when them seeds hit, it can change somebody. Boom, boom. The word of power, the power of the word is exceeding great. It is the power of God to salvation. The first gospel sermon that was ever preached after the pouring forth of the Spirit had great success. Let's look at that success in Acts, the second chapter, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The word is powerful. And on that very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, gee, well, let's just read what Peter said in Acts 2.38. Let's just back up three verses. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And, you know, I was reading this script, this scripture here, and I think we'll, we'll close with this concept here that the plan of salvation is based upon whether or not someone believes the gospel. And if you just think about it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. He called people like you and I to proclaim this gospel, and it pleases God that people that believe it are saved. Now, that's really amazing. And it, that's just something to think about. And it is most definitely, and in verse 18, for the preaching, and that if you look that word preaching up, it's the word logos. Literally, the word of the cross, the preaching of the cross 
is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. We, if when a person believes, God has chosen by the foolishness of preaching, listening to a couple towheads like us. If you believe that Jesus died for you, if you'll repent of your sins and bow the knee to Christ as Lord, it pleases God that he would save your soul. Father God, thank you for sending your son for us. Jesus, thank you for you. Thank you for being obedient. Thank you for sanctifying yourself, setting yourself apart so that we could be sanctified. And thank you for praying for all who would come to know you through those disciples that you prayed for that night that is recorded in this wonderful teaching tonight. I pray, Father, that it would all just be stuck so much into our memories and our hearts and and I just pray that this word just really helps all who hear it, Father. Thank you again. In the name of Jesus. Amen. With all of my heart.